You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience, your one source of unvarnished conservative information, opinion, and pure fact. Great to be back here. It is Thursday morning, January 24th. And yes, my voice is still a little awkward. I actually was going to do a show yesterday. I couldn't really get enough sound out of my voice. Every day, it's almost like this cold progresses to a different stage. One day, it's in the nose, then in the throat, then in both. Um, So that's why I was going to have Jason Jones back on the show to give us more of an in-depth discussion policy-wise. But I felt that today is more of a need for a political discussion because I know a lot of you have a lot of questions on what is going on now with Trump, with the Senate votes, with the strategy, what are conservatives doing? Um, where is this headed? And I feel there's a need, you know, we could talk about the long form deep discussion of, you know, what's going on with the cartels. And this is something we always like to do here, but it's important to understand where things are headed. And I think there's a lot of false choices being put out there on the conservative side. And it's those false choices that I think lead people astray. It's a certain thesis that we've developed from day one of this administration. And it holds true now more than ever. And if you understand it, you'd understand why it is so important for conservatives to assert themselves now and say, no, Mr. President, here's the problem with what you're doing and what you're being advised to do. Here is your only option to open up a better front. And it, and <clears throat> we're going to lay out a strategy. It's a three-pronged strategy of messaging, votes, and tactics, particular to tactics, threatening executive action. And there's, there's several forms of that that I think we really need to revisit. So if we have time, we're going we're, we're to get into all of that. But anyway, the biggest thing that I think a lot of people are missing, the biggest point, is that the president is neither some sort of master four-dimensional chess strategist that, I mean, we could just sit back and he's just going to do the best thing for conservatives and all we just have to do is shut up and follow. Nor is it that he's plotting and scheming to screw conservatives and doesn't care about the border and whatever. It was never like that. It It is teetering on the brink, teetering in the middle. He always teeters. He has good intuition, wants to do the right thing, particularly on the immigration issue. But on the other hand, he himself certainly doesn't know all of the legal nuances, all the policy nuances, and the people around him suck. Okay, Mick Mulvaney is the chief of staff. He's never seen an amnesty he doesn't love. Jared Kushner, you well know, is the biggest problem. Nobody wants to call him out, but until we do, he's going to be that problem. He has Brooke Rollins in there, the Koch brother, and a couple of Koch people in there. Um, Same people who pushed jailbreak, which is inextricably linked 
to illegal immigration, as you guys well know by now, they're pushing stuff. You got Kirsten Nielsen, who I think actually has some good managerial approaches to some of the policies, but in terms of having the political will to do certain things, it's just, it's not there. It's not going to come from her. So the president is really left with everyone closing all the avenues and saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. So he's like, well, what can I do? And he's left with bad choices. He's left with very bad choices. And that's why you're seeing what you're seeing today. Now, the Senate has not yet voted on these bills, but here's the problem. There's a couple of things that are going on here that I need you to look together. You got to look at a pattern of facts in politics. You can't just look at one thing in a vacuum. You have to look at it as cave on the State of the Union. You got to look at the lack of calling for good votes to be voted upon in the Senate, the obsession with amnesty, some of the things he said at a meeting with conservatives yesterday, and I've spoken to several of the people in the meeting, and a lot of it is indeed what some in the media were reporting based on on the meeting, like uh, Politico was reporting. And then you have this push from Jared and some other Republican senators to expand amnesty even more. Let's start with the big Axios article from yesterday. A new immigration idea has been circulating over the past 24 hours at senior levels inside the White House and on Capitol Hill. Give a path to green cards to the 700,000 current DACA recipients. Three sources familiar with the conversations tell Jonathan Swan. Republican senators, including James Lankford of Oklahoma, have advocated for this idea. He is an amnesty whore, that guy. Horrible. He's, he's actually the lead voice for liberal evangelical thought of, you know, instead of focusing on the homosexual agenda, they'll focus on refugees and illegals, and that's somehow, you know, following the Bible. And Jared Kushner has relayed the idea to his colleagues in the White House as a possible way to break the congressional deadlock. There was a fascinating quote from an unknown Republican senator. Now, the point is not whether the media is making it up or you know, unknown, not known. The quote is very true. <clears throat> quote, Trump can withstand Ann Coulter. He can't lose Hannity and the rest. That's what they were warning. <clears throat> now, this quote is more profound than you could even imagine. Because it's so true. The schleppers of us in the back, and look, Anne with all her antics, whatever, but kind of represents the thought of those of us in this audience. We're the the expendables. We can't influence. Hannity, Rush, Fox, Drudge, you better believe that's where it's at. They call a good play, Trump will do it. If they don't, he won't. As I've said all along, the most powerful people in this country are the type of conservatives that have Trump's ear. If you assert yourself, he'll listen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They all will not lead until Trump leads. But Trump, most of the time, will not lead until conservatives lead him because he has the swamp leading him in the other direction in his own administration, most embodied in his own son-in-law. So what happens is, They wait for Trump, and then 
you start getting trial balloons out of the White House with bad signals that it looks like he's going to cave. That freeze frame, that is the moment where the, we all need to jump in and say, no, change course. But instead, they're like, trust the president. Shut up. I'm too scared to say anything. Well, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I support Trump. But that's a stupid thing to say because Trump himself on many of these strategies and even issues is undefined or he, he teeters around. You could define him. You could influence that. But if you're going to take a layback approach and just follow, we're going to get screwed every time. So when Trump called on the Senate to vote for this amnesty plan, so we did two things. We made a policy argument and a political argument. Policy-wise, we made it very clear that we should all agree that a partial wall that is gradually built in exchange for amnesty of any sorts without any policy changes just will not work. It's worthless. Not only is it worthless, it's negative. It's better just to do nothing, reopen the government, and live to fight another day than have have an amnesty on you. You know, if it's an amnesty in exchange for getting rid of chain migration, getting rid of judicial amnesty, I mean, we, we could talk about at what point you'd break even and it would be worth it. But for sure, for a couple billion dollars in funding, when it's not a funding problem, it's a policy problem, you're, you're going backwards. That's for sure an interception. It's for sure a ground ball into a double play. It's for sure worse than doing nothing. Then the argument was political. Okay, you're right, Daniel, but, but it's never going to be enacted. Go along with this because the Democrats are going to rebuff it, and we're going to expose the radicalism of how they're not willing to compromise. Okay, well, in my view, I think you expose the radicalism more by voting on good things like getting rid of identity theft prosecuting criminal aliens, sanctuary cities, which is the linchpin of all this, all my other 25 ideas, taking money from drug cartel assets and paying for the wall. How come there hasn't been a vote on Cruz's El Chapo bill? Why hasn't Trump called in 33 days of the Senate for any good vote? So this is the problem. This has been a failure of 33 days to even message this stuff and make the Democrats take tough votes. So the first vote you're doing is amnesty really fine. Okay. But what I said is I said the proof is in the pudding. Pelosi rejected it. Pelosi rejected it. Now what are you going to do? So it's like, look, if all you want to do is expose the radicalism, like, look, you refuse to compromise. Now we are going full bore. Where we're only going to vote on enforcement where Trump uses the bully pulpit left and right to drive the narratives we've been driving here for the last number of months, where he threatens executive action, which we're going to get to on a number of things that he should revisit, that his staff has told him is off limits, then then it would be worth it. But if the vote on amnesty is the first step to the road to Cave City, where you're just going to be, okay, would you take this amnesty? Well, what about that amnesty? Please, Democrats. Then it's not worth it to demand people like Cruz and Cotton and Lee and whoever else break their legislative virginity on opposing amnesty and actually vote for an amnesty bill. And if it's not going anywhere, just so you could continue screwing them and just capitulate. 
Which brings me to two more pieces of evidence I want to admit in this case to make my case. So where, where is Trump headed? Well, I had someone who was at the meeting tell me, not just firsthand, but better than firsthand, that she herself directly asked the president this question. Look, I mean, now that the Demo- with the Democrats rejecting this, fine. Um, now could we go back to being tough? Is this the end? Or are we going to you know, advocate further amnesties like some of the media was reporting from Jared? And his answer was, no, I might have to use this as a negotiation tactic. You all have to – and listen to this. He said, you all have to stay with me. We have to be united. I can't have Cruz and Cotton voting against it. How come? How about you stay united with us? Notice what Trump is craving for. He's craving for validation. Don't give it to him. Trump feels trapped because he's listening to his staff that tells him you can't do certain things. So he feels like this is all I can do. So in case you thought I was wrong about my prediction, no, this is a problem. Now, sometimes I'm proven wrong only because we successfully get in his face and shoot down the trial balloons. And then he changes course, and that's a good thing. But it's not a refutation to my approach of confronting the president in a respectful way if you want, if you want him to change. It, wouldn't, it won't happen on its own. Then there's the State of the Union, and this really gets to me. The State of the Union is not some sort of sideshow. This is the whole enchilada. Because this entire fight is about the bully pulpit and messaging. Pelosi didn't want Trump to speak. You know, he only spoke for eight minutes a couple weeks ago, never gave other speeches, which I think was a mistake. But she knows if he has an hour or so with the American people to lay out this case, it will be devastating. We cannot have the, they cannot afford to have the discussion about the ill effects of illegal immigration and the cartels and everything surrounding that. I'm going to have a piece out today quantifying the severity of the criminal alien problem. Two million criminal aliens at a minimum in this country. Why, don't, why aren't we deporting them? Obama said we were going to deport them. The crime is insane. He could talk about that for, for hours. Think about it. What's the greatest bully pulpit you could ever think of that would be the most hyped, most watched thing ever? To give a State of the Union address in a volatile environment like on the border outside of Congress. Now, all things equal, it's politically tough for the president to do that on his own and disrespect the institution. But Pelosi did it for him. She gave him the out. She disinvited him so he could have his cake and eat it too, make her seem petty and him look presidential. Some of my colleagues were arguing he should give like a campaign rally style one. You know, that would be more his brand. I'm like, no, no. I think he should give it just as presidential as he was in the House chamber very solemn, and do it on the border. Have angel families there, call them up, maybe have some of them even speak. Could you imagine the people who would watch that? If there's ever one trick, one leverage point he has on messaging, that's it. And instead, he's like, no, Mrs. Pelosi, you're right. Now, some people are saying, well, what do you want him to do? She controls the House chamber. Well, no, I'm not saying give it in the House chamber. Give it elsewhere. He looks so weak with that. So you put this all together, it's not just a culture of capitulation. 
It's that he's not doing the things he needs to do. And then he's saying the only choice he has is to negotiate amnesty. What he needs to be doing is a three-pronged approach. He need see, if I if I need something from you, you need something from me, and we're at a at a standstill. So in this case, he needs their votes in Congress, and Congress needs his signature. But what if the president could say, you know what? Truth be told, I'd rather you appropriate it, but the truth be told. I have leverage to do things executively that are the law of the land and should be done anyway. That is a, is a, is a new ballgame. That totally undermines them. That's how you bring them to the table. And then all the while threatening them, and I have three ideas, you make, you do votes and messaging. You give the speech of your life, an ad hoc State of the Union address. You follow it up, like I said, roundtables with law enforcement that's experts on gangs and the interior enforcement and the border and the drugs. Live stream them. Every day, make it about the, the border. And then you force the Democrats to take tough votes. First of all, have a vote on paying all law enforcement, FBI, DEA, Border Patrol, ICE, Coast Guard, TSA, and make Democrats vote against that. Then vote on sanctuary cities. Vote on cutting off welfare to illegals. Vote on, on clamping down on, on identity theft. Vote on deporting criminal aliens. Again, all this stuff is really the law, but you know, you see what it is it's all for messaging. Make them take tough votes. That's how you crack them. And then say, hey, buddy, you keep this up. That leads us to the third issue. And with this discussion, we're going to tie in a continuation of our earlier discussion on Tuesday about the courts. It all gets back to the courts. Now, look, if you're going to tell the if you're going to tell me that even when Republicans have the House, that they can't do anything without 60 votes in the Senate, legislatively, and then executively, anything Trump wants to do, the courts will shut down so you can't do it, no matter how outlandish it is. And he won't even message against the courts, give speeches and lay out his case, have the attorney general say why it's wrong and say, here's what we're going to do. Then you know what? Then I have nothing for you. Then you're right. Then then just go home. Because if that is the case, like I, I, I've been saying for two years, if you're telling me that everything he does that he has lawful power to do, any ACLU form shop district judge could shut down indefinitely. And that anything Congress does, you need 60 votes. You're, th- those two factors are permanent. You're never going to get 60 votes, even in a second term. That's not in the cards. And in addition to that, the courts will do what they're going to do. So you're done. You are completely done. There's nothing to do. But that is what his advisors tell him. So, yeah, he's like, well, what am I supposed to do? And that's why he's from, you know, negotiating from a weak hand. Trump needs to revisit three point, well, three 
leverage points. Two, one of them is not revisiting, it's initiating for the first time. Two of them is a matter of revisiting. First one is DACA. What if Trump were to tell Democrats, you know what? It would be a shame for you to lose that DACA. Here's what's so hypocritical about what Trump is doing. He's right in his thought process, but he's wrong in his approach. He's very obsessed with the leverage of using DACA to get what he wants. The problem is he's doing it in the wrong way, both legally and politically. Legally, he's agreeing to the premise that somehow the courts have mandated DACA as the law of the land, and somehow he is forced to give them Social Security cards. And politically, he's also like saying, oh, they're such great people, the dreamers, I want to do it. So you're done. I mean, the way you have a brinkmanship, I mean, this is, he's violating his own rule in um, making uh, the art of the deal to never show that you're too desperate. Usually you're like, the way you leverage is like, you show the other side, you don't care. You'll slay the hostage. I just don't care. Dude, I'll deport every one of them, much less give them affirmative benefits. But no, he's like, yeah, we really need to protect them. So Democrats laugh in his face. So right now, we have a legal executive and judicial amnesty as as, as a law of the land. They have de facto permanent non-immigrant status protection. They have that. So therefore, when Trump says, oh, I'll offer you non-immigrant status protection for three more years— if you give me this, they laugh in his face because you're giving it to them anyway. You just gave it to them. If you want to use, this is the hypocrisy of Trump's approach. If you want to even, I don't necessarily agree that we have to agree to some sort of amnesty to do the right thing. But if you want to use it, the way to do it is the opposite, is to go a step back. Say, no, no, no. We're going to deport these folks. Well, Daniel, what about the district judges? First of all, If you look carefully, as wrong and insane and and as lawless as the courts are, if you look at least what the California judge actually said, he said very clearly that he's not directly saying that DACA is mandated by law. He's just saying, here, let me get get the language for you. To be clear, we do not hold that DACA could not be rescinded as an exercise of executive branch discretion. We hold only that here where the executive did not make a discretionary choice to end DACA, but rather acted based on an erroneous view of what the law required, then that's, you know, that was capricious. Now, again, of course, I'm not defending the judge and it's insane and we should never even listen to that. But there's a step in between that before you just disregard them, which is that Here's the dirty little secret. Trump never got rid of it. He never wanted to get rid of it. Remember, I was blasting him throughout 2017 because he wasn't doing it because he was like emoting about dreamers. And that's really what started the border surge up again after it stopped in his first few months of his presidency after the perception was that he'd do the opposite. They started coming when he started talking about how beautiful these dreamers are. When really, pound per pound, they're the ones committing most of the crime. It ain't the 70-year-olds that are doing it. It's going to be the 20-year-olds. But anyway, 
It was only Ken Paxton threatened to sue the other way and trap him and sue him for, for continuing it and use Judge Hannon in the Northern District of Texas. That's when, that's when uh, Trump stepped in. So then the courts were like, no, you made an erroneous assumption there that he was going to get rid of it. That was unlawful. Now, of course, it's unlawful, but fine. Let's say somehow some insane judge agree believes that it's not unlawful, but it's certainly not mandated, right? Even if you agree Obama had the discretion to do it, of course he didn't. But you certainly can't say Trump is bound by it and you have to do it, right? You could have a middle ground where it's discretionary. You could do it, you could not do it. So he had over a year already, more than that, to rectify this and say, all right, now I'm going to do it through the APA, the Administration Policy Act, and with a term of notice, threatened to do that. But his advisors aren't, you know, they're telling him he can't do this. Could you imagine the leverage that would open up from that if he were to start threatening that? It's just so obvious. By the way, I'm sorry. I said um, Andrew Hannon was a judge in the Northern District. It's the Southern District of Texas. Um, so, you know, this is the the court based out of, um, out of Brownsville. But anyway, um, this is where we are. And too many of them had this belief that the Supreme Court, and, and I heard I heard from people who were at the meeting yesterday, that he still has this belief that the Supreme Court's going to take care of it. Now, I could be proven wrong any day, but until now, it's become very clear that they're so political, they're not going to act until he acts. And this is part of the problem. Trump needs to start forcing them. Meaning, you know my view. My view is that for last number of years, we should have been building up a megaphone and a platform and a base for a movement to say that this is all illegitimate. But at least there's a middle ground where even if you want to play within the judicial game and say, look, okay, I'll abide by the Supreme Court, but a district judge doing a universal injunction, meaning not just on the actual merits, or but challenge the standing and challenge also the notion of universal injunction. Say, hey, Clarence Thomas said that this is so illegal, Congress couldn't even authorize the courts to do this. They're not aggressive enough in even pushing back to even force the Supreme Court to take up the case. Because they're like, okay, uh, they just let it go in all cases, all circumstances. They don't even limit it or come back and modify it. This is what I said on Tuesday. This is what the left does when they don't like court cases. They don't go home and say, wow, I guess that's the law of the land. They'll come back and, and give a new modified thing. Heller, oh man, I guess that's it. We can't regulate the Second Amendment. No, they're like, okay, so you have the right to own some form of some caliber of some gun of some capacity in your home. We're still going to ban this capacity of magazines, this caliber gun, this type of firearm that we call assault weapons. We're going to ban carrying outside your home. And they'll start to clock all over again. They push back. Hobby Lobby. You can't force a private entity to violate their conscience and cover in a benefit package for employees abortifacients. They're like, all right, well, let's modify the rule and come back to a little different case. And they're winning now. 
RSI never does that. You see what I'm saying? I'm not even, this is short of just saying, look, the courts are lawless and I have to follow the constitution. God forbid we should ever do that. I'm saying get more aggressive. I know it's not easy, but you got to do it. That's your only leverage. You got to threaten to get rid of it. And stop talking about how good the dreamers are. Talk about how bad they are. So Democrats that will actually believe you'll pull the trigger. I mean, he talks about negotiations. I don't understand. This is pathetic. Now, again, it's not all his fault. I understand his predicament because the people around him suck. But some of that is his fault. And B, all the more so, we need to get in his face and say, no, Mr. President, don't do this, do other things. And my fear is too many of these people are going to stand down. It's amazing. You look at the president's play down the field. He's saying, please unite behind me, meaning he's scared of the pressure. That's exactly when we need to turn it up. That's the thing. If we don't do it, no one else will. Stop making this so personal about Trump in in either direction. Drives me nuts. Drives me nuts. So that is the first point of leverage. He's got to revisit DACA and threaten to get rid of it. Number two, and again, I'm sorry for sniffling, like, and I'm sorry for sounding so, uh, so nasal today, but uh, it's that or nothing. <laughs> so just bear with me. I'm just going to get a drink here. Anyway, um, number two is he needs to revisit threatening to say, I have inherent executive Article II authority and delegated 212F authority to completely shut down immigration. My goal is not just to build a wall. My goal is to stop illegal immigration, stop the humanitarian crisis, stop impairing the cartels, stop all this stuff. Give a speech. Lay it out. This is where he needs a State of the Union to lay all this out. This is where the State of the Union is not just some sort of parlor game with Nancy Pelosi. This is where he would lay out these threats. This is where he would actually enact his leverage, apply his leverage. He's got to revisit that. I will shut down all cross-border migration. Uh, but, but Daniel, but um, uh, a district judge said that uh, the ACLU and National Immigrant Law Center could get standing because Are you kidding me? Imagine if Trump gave a speech and said, how could a judge give standing to a political organization to sue for foreign nationals in a caravan invading our border because they have an injury because now they have to spend too much time learning my executive power that I have? Can you imagine what Trump could do with that? He could say, imagine a pro-Trump organization getting standing on anything the left does they don't like because they say, now, now we have to spend more time uh, informing our audience on what you're doing. He could make hay out of that. He could say this is, an, an, this is the most solemn job of a president to stop this, the cartels, and this power has never been challenged and indeed the Supreme Court has just upheld it. You got to speak, talk, articulate yourself, and threaten it. 
if we're at the point where we're going to take all of his leverage and just flush it based on a district judge, then we're done. I don't know what to tell you. If you're asking, Daniel, what's the magic pill for something that doesn't require congressional votes and it's something that won't be challenged in courts and we're not going to push back against then, it's nothing. If you say that, oh, I'm scared to do anything because they'll challenge it, well, then they'll challenge it because they know you'll listen to it. There's no limit to that. What if if Trump decided to give the speech and a court said – put an injunction. I don't know. They said, you're, you're not allowed to give a State of the Union address outside of the chamber of the House. Would he have listened? By the way, I find it so ironic that finally everyone's like, you know, standing up for legislative power. Like, yeah, Pelosi, she controls that chamber. You can, the president of the United States is not allowed to walk in there without her permission. Wow. So you admit Congress is powerful. Is anyone ever willing to have Congress stand up against a court? Or is it only the president? Now, again, you have to understand a lot of this stuff, they're trial balloons. As I'm talking to you now, and I'm literally, I'm just going to do this with you live. You're going to get this a couple hours later. But um, this is from Breitbart. Donald Trump... Trump still planning major speech despite postponing State of the Union. Uh, President Donald Trump is still considering delivering a major speech to the country next week despite his decision to postpone his State of the Union address. Former Deputy Assistant to the President Sebastian Gorka revealed in an interview with Breitbart News Daily on Thursday that supporters should not be surprised if Trump ended up speaking to the country anyway. Now, I don't know if this is just him hoping or if he really has any news like that. We'll see. But again... Some of this is, you know, Trump is going to see all over conservatives making fun out of him for giving into Pelosi. And then he might change and people are like, well, as you see, you wrongly accuse Trump of being weak and you see he's not. Well, it's self-fulfilling. A lot of it's because he reacts. It proves our point. He cares about what conservatives think. But it's the big ones. It's Rush and Sean and, and Fox and Friends. Those are the ones that matter. I love it. Kushner is the article here. uh, um, This is from uh, thehill.com, where they say supposedly in a meeting, and I heard this from someone too, that Trump mocked Kushner's immigration expertise. He's like, hey, in the last 48 hours, he's become an expert. Yeah, Trump, you realize your son's some sort of inspector gadget launch pad looking fool. So get rid of him. But anyway, Kushner has, quote, privately assured Trump that he can reach a deal with Dems due to his relationship with some moderate moderate senators. (laughs) What a joke. What a joke. By the way, I was speaking with a friend of mine who was in the meeting. And uh, this guy... You know, we, we still have a good relationship, but, you know, he was all part of the jailbreak stuff. And it's funny. He was like, all right, Daniel, I don't mean to bring up a sore topic here. But he said, you know, one, one of the things I'm at least happy about this meeting is it builds off of what we did with criminal justice reform, that the president is establishing networks of connections with conservative groups. And I was like, I said, Ken, 
not to respond in kind with a sore point, but it's like, let's put aside our disagreement on the substance of the issue. I said, you're proving my point. Yeah, he's establishing ties with you guys only as a means of having Jared give you marching orders to support the pol- the policies that the swamp around him supports. All right, in that case, you agreed with it, but you'll we all agree that on immigration, it's wrong. They're doing the same thing. So are you going to listen or not? I warned you so many times that that entire modus operandi of having Jared buy off conservatives was not just unique to jailbreak. That it was going to work with um with many other issues. Don't doubt me. <laughs> Everything I've predicted has come true on this issue. I mean, listen to the people who have been you know what's amazing to me? Do you know who was not in that meeting? I'm not gonna say everyone who was in the meeting. But I will tell you who was not in that meeting. There's a woman named Rosemary Jenks. Some of you may never have heard of her. Some of you have. She is the government relations director, really the policy lobbying lifeblood of the group Numbers USA. She has been fighting every amnesty battle since I was in diapers. Okay? There is nobody alive who has a better political and policy view on this. She knows every immigration statute. She knows every, she has such a can you imagine the broad history? She's lived through all of these lessons. For me, it started in the 2006 battle. She was involved in drafting IRA in, in 1996. Why wasn't she in the meeting? You know, that's the problem. Basically, they all tell him it's like, oh, the things that conservatives are demanding are unrealistic. It's kooky. And this is what you got to do. All right, then, then that's it. It's not so much is Trump a master or not. It's that you have to understand. Most people in the administration and at the important levels of power and most Republicans in the Senate support amnesty and hate a government shutdown, both as an end to itself. They're desperate to get a government shutdown and they actually want amnesty anyway. So if the president is starting to throw out endless negotiations of offers of amnesty, you have to understand where that's going to head. Politics is an art. It's not a science. You can't study something individually. You have to take a a holistic policy and political approach to everything. That's fundamentally what we're dealing with as of now. This is the problem with his strategy. It needs to be bully pulpit, tough votes, and threatening executive power. But, you know, at some point, you got to look at the man himself. I respect being close with your family. I get it. But, you know, we all have family members that might not share our political values. But it's worse than that here. It's not just that Kushner is a liberal. It's that he's a nothing. 
It's one thing if like he had tremendous government experience. Or, there's nothing there. He was a slumlord. He's a real estate guy. He literally knows nothing. He thinks like he's this like, I mean, he's more powerful than anyone. I don't get it. I just don't get it. It drives me nuts. Why would you empower that guy? It's just stupid politically because Trump is getting whacked for it from all ends. It's not like the left has given him any more love for Jared and Ivanka because of their political views. If anything, they resent him. They make fun out of it. The nepotism, what a buffoon they are, and the fact that they don't know anything. I'm saying it's not like he's garnering any respect. You tick off conservatives and you, 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 you know, just everyone just sees through that. It just looks stupid. Or at least silo him to one issue. He was going to be the guy, the Middle East Pizar. Fine, so relegate him to that. Since when did he become the expert of every single policy issue? I just don't get it. But again, when the history is written on these years, anyone who would depict an accurate portrayal of what went on and why we failed would have to note that it was the reticence of conservatives who had any influence to call out Jared Kushner. Oh, Daniel, I can't do that. All right, well, that's the linchpin. That's where it is. If Trump were to start feeling that conservatives hate Jared, he would at least gradually clip his wings. No question about it. People are too scared to do it. You know what would be, what would be powerful? Everyone's terrified to act unilaterally. Oh, I, I don't want to, you know, because what if I just do it and no one else does it and then, you know, it doesn't accomplish anything, but then I lose my access to the White House. What if 30 conservative leaders, whatever that even means, but, you know, all these people that are invited to the White House um, would say, would write a letter to the president and say, all together, so in one shot, all their names in a round robin, so you can't accuse anyone or the other, all together, we have serious concerns about Jared. We don't question his integrity. We appreciate your strong family ties. But at the end of the day, he does not really share the values of the base that voted for you. Nor does he have meaningful political experience to navigate these fights as the as 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 a in a position that's ad hoc more powerful than chief of staff. Right this is literally the position for which you you get a seasoned political veteran. I mean this is the whole thing um with what's his name with Reagan appointing James Baker. You know, we could debate about it cuz the ideological problems with Baker, but he needed someone that really really knew the ins and outs of politics. But no, we don't have that. That's the problem here. 
But anyway, you're not going to win by, please, what about this amount of amnesty? See, you're, you're, you're not compromising with me. Come on. That's not how you do it. You talk about crime. And he has the right message of, um, you know, build the wall and crime will fall. I think that's the right message. Extrapolate on it. Now, it's really build the wall, crime will fall, deport, and crime will be aborted. Okay, fine. That didn't exactly rhyme, but it's, it's a mixture of deportations because, again, you need to deport the two million criminal aliens here. But then there's the problem that they keep coming back, and that's where you need border enforcement. I explained that in the piece I'm going to put out soon, link to it in show notes, the symbiotic relationship of interior and border enforcement. Needs to be done. Needs to be done. It's that simple. So, um, just got to send some messages here. But, uh, where is this? Way too much going on here. Uh, everyone's messaging me about this meeting. And... You know, I'm just telling you, I'm not happy about what I heard. Now, are these conservative organizations going to fold? I mean, some of them seem to be holding strong. But again, you know, it gets very personal when you're brought in. And that's why I don't want to judge other people. It's easy for me to sit here and say this because this is why, you know, I realize someone has to be the suicide bomber. Someone has to be the bad cop. There's too many good cops. Very few bad cops. Okay? So I, I said, I'll do it. I'll be the guy that will never be invited. They'll blow up the relationships and just be able to say what I want. But we need more people doing that. You know, if you just keep saying, look, the president was so reasonable. Okay, fine. Exactly. He needs to, I, I think he should say that. He should get up and, and start a speech off saying that. But then use that as a launching point and say, therefore, here's what we're doing. Now we're doing more than the wall because this is about a lot more than the wall. We're ending the welfare. We're ending the magnets. We're ending the fleecing of America. We're ending the counting in the census. We're ending all the magnets. And a lot of this stuff, I have the power to do unilaterally. And I will fo follow the INA that was almost unanimously passed by Congress. I will follow our laws. District judges, if the Supreme Court really feels strongly enough, let them weigh in. Judges created by Congress cannot overturn statute. Demand that McConnell put these votes forward, use the bully pulpit every day, and revisit these three leverage points of telling the Democrats, hey, now no more Mr. Nice Guy. That is where Trump needs to head on this issue. Okay, that is where we are today. <laughs> but again, as we started this week out with this messaging, it all gets back to, to, to the stupid courts. It all gets back to the courts. I want to read an article to you from 
my amazing friend, good guy, Paul Myrengoff of Powerline, Powerline blog, um, very, very good stuff. If you, I mean, if you want to find an author who, you know, is similar to to the content that we put out, unique stuff, really follows different issues, legal issues. Um, Paul is a good guy. I'll link to this article in show notes, but um, he made the case that we keep making, which is if you're waiting for the Supreme Court to somehow undo all this garbage, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Supreme Court has been presented with two sets of cases relating to issues at the core of the LGBTQ whatever agenda. Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, and Altitude Express, Inc. v. Zarda raised the question of whether discrimination against an employee because of sexual orientation constitutes prohibited employment discrimination because of sex within the meaning of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Lower courts have divided on this question, and it's one that clearly ought definitely to be settled. Now, he goes on to say that the Supreme Court seems very reluctant to tell them. Instead of deciding either to hear or not hear the three cases, it has repeatedly relisted them. As SCOTUS blog explains, quote, when a case is relisted, that means that it is set for reconsideration at the justices' next conference. When a case is repeatedly relisted, it means the court is kicking the can down the road. In other words, they're being political. And he explains that's what happened with three transgender cases. Now, again, if the lower courts are ruling good and it's the left bringing them up to try to get an appeal cert from the Supreme Court is one thing. But no, the lower courts are being allowed to permanently alter our society and the Supreme Court's not doing anything. This is a very interesting thing that he picks up on, a pattern that we have pioneered over the last few years. Why not, he asked. Why aren't they doing it? A request to have the Supreme Court hear a case, a petition for a certiorari, is granted when at least four of the nine justices vote in favor of the grant. We can assume that the four liberal justices, Breyer, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, don't want to hear these cases because they fear the court will find against their preferred positions. We can also assume that some of the conservative justices want to hear the cases, otherwise petitions would have been denied. That's a very astute observation. Finally, we can assume that at least two of the conservative justices have been unwilling thus far to vote to hear the cases. Otherwise, the petitions would have been granted. I see no reasons why Justice Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch would hold out against deciding these cases. None has ever been bashful about deciding controversial matters, although I'm not sure where Paul gets Gorsuch from. I'm not sure why he's so confident about him. But the other two, for sure, he's right. And he says, my assumption is that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh are the two conservative holdouts. The Chief Justice is believed in general to want to proceed more cautiously than his conservative brethren. Kavanaugh doesn't have much of a track record yet. However, it's plausible to believe that after his bruising confirmation fight, he might want to shy away from extremely controversial cases involving divisive social issues. I'm telling you, folks, this is what we warned about. Because Kavanaugh already did this with the Planned Parenthood funding. And with the global warming case, we warned you guys about this. All these other guys, all these thumb-sucking conservatives that have it all figured out. You know, I think Kavanaugh's going to say, screw it. After you treated me this way, forget it. No. 
They're going to fight to the death. The left fights to the death when they want something, but our guys do the opposite. They're like, no, 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 please don't, don't view me as partisan. And they're going to go out of their way the opposite to demonstrate that he's not a conservative. <sighs> Such shallow thinking. I, I, I can't stand it. Such shallow thinking on the part of so many people that are thought of as great conservative thinkers. They, they got it all figured out. All figured out. Look, you know, obviously I can never get behind Ann Coulter's messaging when she writes a book in Trust in, in, in Trump We Trust. <clears throat> you know, her stick is kind of like always going against the grain and, you know, once something is cool with other people, then she goes against it and goes on to the next thing. But at least I got to give her this much credit that she's willing to permanently burn her relationship by going after Trump and Jared. But again, as that anonymous Republican senator said, if it's only people like her, Trump's not going to care. Hannity, Limbaugh, all those stupid shows on Fox, I don't even watch them, so I can't even tell you the lineup. And that's where it needs to come out with. So there's a lot more going on. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have Jason Jones on tomorrow for our Foreign Policy Friday. Obviously, I know some of you are wondering about Venezuela. There's a lot going on there. I want to have Joseph Humeyer, our resident Latin American expert, on the show next week to to discuss that. Um, what's important, you know? Again, Latin America is a very tough issue because. It's it's nothing that you could turn around on a dime. We should have been investing in a carrot and stick approach in a Monroe Doctrine for years rather than the Middle East. So this the 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 path of what to do with the rebellion against Maduro would have been so much easier. It would have been a much easier decision. The problem is that Iran, China, and Russia already control things there. Maduro's got all that. He's got all the guns. All the people rebelling, God bless them, but they, you know, they don't have the guns. So, you know, you know, I'm very into going after the bad guys in our own hemisphere, but we have to explore what is the right way to do that because, you know, people like Rubio, I'm scared, are really going to start with this like nation building, get involved, maybe even have troops there. I'm not convinced that that's a winnable thing now that there's enough of a society to work with to make that work at this point. I think there's things we could have been doing over the years that would have greased the skids for that. But um, it's not going to work on a dime. So we're going to discuss that with Joseph Humeyer. He's got a very, very important take. A couple other things just wanted to clear the decks with here. Again, just to get back to the notion of the importance of magnets and incentives and disincentives to the cartels and the illegals and the smugglers. And also how illegal immigration ties into criminal justice and our general toughness or weakness on crime. Another guest I want to have on the show, there's a man by the name of Sheriff Mark Denells. 
or Mark Daniels, I think he pronounces it. He's the sheriff of Cochise County. That is the big rural county in the far southeast corner on the border of um, Mexico in Arizona. It's the farthest county to the east in Arizona, bordering New Mexico. That's literally the wild, wild west. That's like, you know, Tombstone. (laughs) The city of Tombstone is in that county. And as you could well imagine, that's the rural county to the east of Santa Cruz and Pima, where you have the Tucson metro area. So whereas that area is really becoming more and more liberal, Cochise County is very conservative. So you have a conservative sheriff there. You know what he told me? So I call him up, and I, I want to get a taste of, you know, just what, what is he seeing with the migration? Just what, you know, what's your experience? What are you seeing? You know, I speak with the Pima County Sheriff, the Yuma County Sheriff. It's terrible there, right? That's where all the illegals are coming in. And the fascinating thing is that he tells me, Daniel, no, this is the best it's been in 30 years. You want to know why? Because Cochise County is how our entire border now would look if not for the magnets. Let's preface this with some history. We suffered from endless illegal immigration from Mexico. Two things happened around 2008 that were very beneficial to us, at least from an immigration standpoint. Number one was the recession. And number two is, we. I think once the recession shut it off, it kind of reached the point where anyone from Mexico wanted to come here came here already. Legally, illegally, we've had record legal immigration, record illegal immigration. 10% of the country is here. So it kind of, you know, we reached the end of the rope. We could have finally secured our border. But Obama came in with all these magnets and spawned an entire new wave of Central American migration. The amount of gangs and crime and drugs that, that has unleashed on America the amount of death and mayhem that that has unleashed on Mexicans because of them traipsing through, and we'll talk about that a little bit with Jason tomorrow, 33,000 dead Mexicans a year because of the cartel warfare, warfare created by that economy. That's why our border has heated up again. But it's in certain spots. It's San Diego. It's Yuma, Tucson, El Paso, um, and Rio Grande is kind of the same problem it's been the last five years. It hasn't gotten worse, but it's plateaued at a very problematic level. It still has the most migration there. Basically, those five five out of nine border sectors. Now, Cochise County is in the Tucson sector, and they don't divide up the data based on county. But that county never had the problem. You know why? I'm going to tell you something that is going to wrap together the linchpin of jailbreak, why we had the drug crisis, why we had the migration crisis, and how this is all about incentives and not even about a wall. Cochise County doesn't have much border fencing, much less a substantial wall. And in fact, a lot of places have nothing. Now, it does have pretty rugged terrain, so it's never going to have as many people coming through as some of the urban areas. Okay, so that is a caveat, but it's still, it's been down there. Why? 
because they have a wacko Wild West nutty sheriff named Mark Daniels. Now, I say that endearingly. You know what he told me? He said that he has a 100% conviction rate in his county for drugs. They will, they will go after anyone and everyone, including 14-year-olds. Because the big story, this was the big story of the cartels, is that they knew that the feds have a policy of not prosecuting minors. And in general, they're becoming very weak on that. They pro- he said, I will throw a 14-year-old in my jail. And not only that, I will go to the high schools in the county and warn them about it. What the cartels were doing is two things. Number one, they were um, number one. They were uh, where is this? I'm trying to figure out the name of these kids. What they're called? It's it's a Spanish name. I wrote it in an article, but anyway, there's the the illegals coming from Central America that they use as drug traffickers. Um. They actually, they'll threaten to beat them. They'll torture them to carry them. So that, that's where you get. And then they recruit Mexican-Americans, but dual U.S. citizens on the American side of the border to go and bring them back and forth. And no, it's not just at the points of entry. Okay, this is where you understand. And, and they, they also help out with the human smuggling too. Now, some of them are anchor babies. They should never be here. Some of them maybe are legitimate you know, children of legal Mexican immigrants over the years. But they recruit them. And nobody else will prosecute minors. At a federal level, we certainly don't do it. And the states don't do it. In his county, he will do it. He's taken a lot of flack for it. But he said, let me tell you something. Sinaloa, which sits to the south of him, they know you don't want to be caught in my county. Think about that. Think about that. A lot more to talk about. Look for a Foreign Policy Friday show with Jason Jones tomorrow. Send me your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.